0: So today, I'm concluding a series that we've been in entitled, Measure of a Man. The framework for the series was derived from The Mask You Live In, which is a documentary that I've been referencing throughout the series. The question asked by The Mask You Live In is, what does it mean to be a man specifically in America? The answer, presented by the documentary, is that American masculinity is associated with three things. Power, economic success, and sexual conquest. Over the last two weeks, we've considered the person of Jesus and power, the person of Jesus and economic success. And today, we'll consider the person of Jesus and sexual conquest. Before we get there, to our topic of consideration today... Uh, If for nothing else, there's a few things that I need to clarify to clear out the cobwebs that are in our minds. Obviously, we we live in culture. Um, We live our lives apart from the local church and fellowship with one another. So naturally, we bring our ideas into church with us. We bring our culture's ideas into the consideration of the scripture. Um, And again, I'm trying to clear out some of those cobwebs. Uh, Maybe for some folks it feels like concrete in our minds about sexuality, but I'm going to try to clear those out a little bit. Scripture has much to say about human sexuality. Scripture defines sexual orientation and declares that there is design not only to our sexual orientation, but to our sexual desires, as well as the expression of those desires. Now, interestingly, from the very beginning, what God has to say about sexuality is affirmative. It's positive, favorable, and supportive. God, from all of eternity, has always been and is currently concerned with human flourishing. His desire for men and women is that they would have life that is abundant and beautiful, satisfying and eternal, God wants you and I and human beings to flourish. In fact, the creation record in Genesis 1 accounts for God saying that all he created was good. Yeah, God created the light and said it was good. He created the land and the seas and said they were good. God created every kind of plant, said it was good. He created the sun and the moon and the stars and declared that they were good. God made the sea animals and winged animals and said they are good. God created the land animals and said they're good, 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 good echoes throughout the beginning of creation. Then there's this interruption in that rhythm, the rhythm of God God created and it was good. God created and it was good. God created and it was good. And that interruption happens when God creates man. And women are like, sure enough, it does but men and women. After creating them, he blesses them and he commissions them. Be one flesh, be unified, be married, have children, and fill the earth. And uniquely, only after God has created man and woman as his image bearers, creating Adam in his image with sexual design and desire, Creating Eve as a woman in his image with sexual design and desire. Only after that does he not only say that what he created is good, but he says something more. And I don't know if you guys have picked that up when you read it. These creatures, this man and this woman complete his creation and God says it is very good. In the Hebrew, that means exceedingly good, abundantly good. But from the beginning... Uh, and as our, as our own human experiences prove to us, God does not limit men and women. He gives us free will to do and to act and to choose as we please. While instructing us about the wise way that leads to life and the foolish way that leads to death, God never dictates what we choose or any other of our choices for that matter. Accordingly, God's sovereignty never supersedes our free will, which is how men and women can be held accountable for all of their choices as a supremely sovereign God rules and resides over all of reality. As many of you know, Adam and Eve disregarded God's desire and design. They disobeyed him, eating of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, and that disobedience and get this, think through this, was rooted in disbelief. We behave based on what we believe. So our beliefs are of utmost importance. And I might even make an argument that our beliefs are more important than our behaviors. In their disobedience, death was ushered into the human experience along with the reign of sin and Satan. And we experience... And I wonder if you guys will feel me on this. But we experience many deaths en route to our actual physical death. Many of us know the death pangs of a loved one no longer with us. The death of trust forsaken by physical, sexual, emotional abuse. The death of commitment and covenant as marriages are ruined by sin and selfishness. The death of depression and self-loathing. The death of crippling anxiety and distrust. The death of addiction and the death of denial, the list goes on. We experience the remnant of death all throughout our human experience. And this death is a result of reluctant free will, believing that we know better than the design and the desire of God. And because of that, the free will of men and women, specifically who disregard the parameters and the purposes of their sexuality... For that very reason, Scripture then goes on to interact with people's perversions of their sexuality. But I want you to hear a few things. Be reminded, before God ever has anything negative to say or corrective to say about human sexuality, he designed our sexuality, he defined our sexuality, and he said it was very good. You guys tracking with me? Yes? Okay. But humans have disregarded God's design and definitions. We've gone our own way. I'm talking to myself. That includes all of us. Let me be clear. There are countless ways that men and women pervert God's purposes and parameters regarding sexuality. Countless ways. Not just one church like homosexuality. And not just two like, well, sure, homosexuality and I guess pornography as well. There are countless perversions of human sexuality, countless heterosexual perversions. Let me, re- let me repeat that now. There are innumerable heterosexual perversions of God's purposes and parameters for human sexuality. And yes, there are homosexual perversions as well. And then there are head and heart perversions that Jesus teaches are equally egregious, but we just don't really believe that. Head and heart perversions like lust. Lust, Jesus teaches, is adultery. Even though lust in our head and in our hearts might not ever be seen by anyone. So they might not be able to uh, label it or criticize it or picket it. But Jesus teaches that it's present and it's there and it's as egregious as the rest. So if you hear me now and you're content to hang your hat on there being one primary sexual perversion or uh, maybe two... I have to tell you, you're wrong, and you need to check yourself. You need to check the whole counsel of Scripture and what Scripture has to say about all the perversions of human sexuality, and not just pick and choose the ones that fit your bias or your prejudices. But again, from the beginning, and this is so important, God's divine design and desire for human sexuality is affirmative, and it's positive, it's favorable and supportive. God is a champion of human flourishing, but when we disobey and defy God, he cares about us enough to speak to our disobedience, because it's to our own detriment. Okay, that's the end of what I need to clarify. That's like a seminar on how to alienate everyone and make a lot of enemies. Uh, If you guys have uh, questions or concerns or you want to uh, get into a debate, send me an email directly at j-e-f-f, that's jeff, at citychurchevv.com. But like I said, today we're considering Jesus and sexual conquest, sexual conquest being the third measurement of American masculinity. And I want to define sexual conquest, so we'll put that up on the screen. Sexual conquest is seduction culminating in sexual intercourse. Again, that's what the documentary said was the third measure of American masculinity. In an effort to not um, aggrandize or be crass, uh, I'm not going to get into specifics here or details. Uh trust that we're all a smart enough group of people to realize that the world we live in, the culture that we take part in, is full of stories based in sexual conquest. Sexual conquest is used endlessly in advertisements, even mundane advertisements about beverages and used cars, home goods, and website providers. I mean, sexualizing socks and sandwiches is such a weird way to advertise. Sexual conquest is the plot to countless box office hits and best-selling films. And I'm not sure which came first on this one, the chicken or the egg, but there are countless men and women, I'm sure many who are hearing this now, who live by this code of conduct, seduction, culminating in sexual intercourse, and it's considered common and casual and of no consequence whatsoever. But an observation that I've made, uh, and certainly certainly this began in in my own life first, uh, is that sexual conquest as a code of conduct comes from a place of immense insecurity and deep dissatisfaction. People feel deeply dissatisfied, so they seduce others for their own satisfaction, however temporary that might be. People feel immensely insecure, so they exploit others to give themselves some sense of assurance and value. People feel empty and hollow and wanting, so they use sexual conquest to siphon off of other people, something that they feel void. And in rather stark contrast, the Gospels account for this man named Jesus that we talk about so much here on Sunday mornings who had all the power in the world, enough power to walk on water and to raise the dead, multiply food to feed tens of thousands, and to command their attention with no mic, but just his voice and his teaching. A man named Jesus who had endless resources. But the fascinating thing about this Jesus, this strong man and this successful man, is how he related to sexual conquest. Or rather, how he did not relate to seducing with the purpose of sexual intercourse. How uncommon for a strong man. How uncommon for a successful man, for a powerful man, for a popular man to not relate to sexual conquest like that. Do you guys agree? That's very uncommon for a man of his rank. And in the remainder of our time, there are a couple of things that I want you to see, I want us to see, about Jesus and sexual conquest. So turn with me in your Bibles or into the City Church app uh, to the Gospel of John chapter 4. And while you're finding the Gospel of John chapter 4, I want to welcome those of you joining us by our app or podcast, assuming that there's some of y'all still with us and you haven't unplugged me yet. We're going to start at John chapter 4, verse 6. This is a, a familiar account for many folks, Labeled the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. And prior to verse 6, Jesus and his disciples have been traveling. They made their way to a town in Samaria called Sychar, And in verse 6 is where we pick up. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Okay, so the scene is set. Jesus is tired and he's hungry. He's thirsty from a journey. And as we just read, he's alone because his boys, right? His disciples, his closest friends just left to go get food. Then all of a sudden, a single woman approaches Jesus, rather the well that he's sitting by. As she approaches him, they're both alone now, but they're together. Jesus speaks up. She hears the words of this man breaking through the silence of her stroll, and she feels the tension, you guys know that tension, however subtle, of being in close proximity to a stranger. You might feel that way right now, sitting next to somebody. But then he breaks the silence. "'Will you give me a drink?' Just a few noteworthy comments as we move forward. Women at this time in Israel were at best, 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 second-class citizens. Their rights and roles were severely limited. Women couldn't own property. They couldn't testify in court. They couldn't inherit anything from their family. Some historical commentators indicate that being a woman was like just better than being a slave. So that's part of this woman's reality, right? She lives within that context. But in addition to being a woman, she's a Samaritan woman. Jews hated, I mean, despised Samaritans. They loathed them. Samaritans were an ethnic result of Jews hooking up with and marrying foreigners, But the salt in the wound for the devout and full-blooded Jewish folk was that these half-breeds, which is what they called them, actually adopted the practices and the cultures and the gods of the foreigners that they intermingled with. That was the salt in the wound. And as a side note, um, I don't know if you guys have uh, been taught this before, but that's what makes the parable of the good Samaritan so scandalous. Jesus was forcing religiously devout Jewish men and women to recognize and acknowledge that a Samaritan was the kind and merciful and compassionate and graceful one in the story. Not the Levite, the full-blooded Jew who was of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And not the priest, God's designated employee, but the low and despicable Samaritan who Jews hated and railed against because of their racism. So, in society's standards, this poor girl has it twice as terrible. She's a woman and a Samaritan woman at that. And Jesus, this pure-blooded Jewish man, speaks up and asks for a favor. Will you give me a drink? I can only imagine the look on her face when at verse 9, as we read together, the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And this is where we see the first major distinction between Jesus and so many men when it comes to sexual conquest. I'll put it up on the screen. It's in your app. You can jot it down as well. Jesus is not interested in seducing He's interested in satisfying. Jesus is not interested in seducing. He's interested in satisfying. Or in other words, Jesus isn't concerned about what he can get from this woman. He's concerned about what he can give to her. And what a quintessential distinction that is between Jesus and so many men. How many men are more concerned with what they can get from women than what they can give to them? Fellas, ask that question of yourself. Women, you probably don't have to try hard, but think about your experiences with men, right? The men that you know who would rather give to you than get from you. I bet you they're few and far between. Especially men, especially men that have all of the socially constructed and systematically reinforced advantage and power like Jesus does here. Right, He's a man, he's Jewish, she's a woman, she's a Samaritan. The whole system that they live in supports Jesus, gives him power and advantage. But in this private interaction with Jesus, and this socially and racially inferior woman, Jesus doesn't take advantage of his clout, like other men who have been in a similar situation did. I was like, man, do I say this or not? I don't really want to pick on these two examples, but hopefully it's a wide enough range. This reminds me of Bill Clinton and Bill Cosby. Right In very similar circumstances, with the system supporting them, giving them power, and they take advantage of that. Jesus doesn't take advantage of his racial superiority like so many European American slave owners did with their African American slaves. Jesus' answer indicates that he isn't interested in discussing the social constructs of his day. He doesn't want to get into the race talk and the gender talk. He's, interested, he's not interested in piggyback, piggybacking on that, which I'm sure is at the front of this woman's mind. He really wasn't even interested in having a drink, but that was an easy way to start the dialogue, right? You got to say something to get it going. Hey, can I have a drink? Will you give me a drink of water? How can you ask me for a drink of water? If you knew the gift of God, Jesus says, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water again we see that jesus is not interested in seducing but satisfying giving a gift and not getting but what is this gift what is this living water check that question we're going to come back to it in verse 11 the woman responds sir you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep where can you get this living water And then she asks a historical question that I don't really have time to deal with right now in verse 12. But then in verse 13, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water in the well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, and I love this because this is how we feel. Jesus is talking way up here, and this woman's response is, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep walking back up here, right? That's a very human response. Jesus is using this woman's physical thirst to springboard into her invisible thirst or her longings, her wants, her desires. The Samaritan woman's physical thirst requires her time and attention, her work and her sacrifice every single day as she walks back and forth between her village and the well and carries the water, the container and the full jug back home. In essence, she's a servant of her thirst. Her thirst commands her and her thirst controls her. And in a modern sense, uh, we get this because we use the term thirsty right? Are you guys familiar with the term thirsty? Younger folk, you might be too familiar with thirst trap. It's a very similar concept here when referring to people who are controlled by their longings or their wants or their desires, whether that be for attention or affirmation or physical things. It's like you're thirsty. And while Jesus springboards into her more significant thirsts, the invisible ones, he doesn't stay there. He immediately moves towards her satisfaction. That's what he's interested in, her satisfaction through this gift, likened to a spring of water that wells up to eternal life. To receive clarity on exactly what this gift is, we'll quickly refer to a few chapters ahead in John's gospel, uh, in the gospel of John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. We'll put it up on the screen. Uh, You can jot it down and check it out later if you want. Jesus stands up in a gathering of religious professionals and common people and cries out, If anyone thirsts, that same invisible deeper longing of the soul, thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in him, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So whoever believes gets this gift that leads to eternal life that begins to satisfy and quench from the inside. Now this he said about the Spirit. So this living water is the very Spirit of God, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So that's what this living water is. That's what Jesus wants to give to men and women, is his very self, his person. He desires to indwell us. And in Jesus' continued response, we'll see a second uh, significant distinction here between Jesus and so many men when it comes to sexual conquest. And what we'll see is that Jesus is not interested in exploiting. He's interested in empathizing. That's the second point there. Jesus is not interested in exploiting. He's interested in empathizing. Verse 16, he told her, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. I want to get your attention here, because a standard way that this text is usually treated is as follows and you guys nod your head or you know, give me an amen or a hand clap or something if you've ever heard this text explained in this way. This is how it goes. I don't think this. This is not what I'm advocating for. This is what people usually treat the text as. This was a sinful woman. She was getting water in the middle of the day because she was shunned by the rest of the women in her village who usually went out in the morning time when it wasn't so hot. And she was shunned because she was... After all, that's what Jesus was drawing attention to here in verse 18 when he said, you've had five husbands, and you currently have a live-in lover. Tisk tisk, sinful woman. But Jesus is nice, even to bad people, like this promiscuous woman. So if you're bad, Jesus is nice to you. Amen. Have you guys ever heard that? The text be treated in that way? There's a a host of problems with that common interpretation, which, again, I don't have time to deal with right now. But for our purposes, this way, well, that way, that common way of understanding this portion of text means that Jesus is exploiting this woman. He's trying to get her back up against the wall, tell her she's wrong and guilty and promiscuous and bad. But he's not. He's not interested in exploiting her. He's interested in empathizing with her. And that's so crucial for us to see. Jesus is interested in understanding her and sharing in her feelings. He says, well, he doesn't really say this, but he says, I know what it's like to thirst, to long, to be satisfied. And I know that not just in the physical sense, but in the invisible sense as well. Jesus knows what it's like for the human soul to long, And to yearn. He understands the soul's desire to be cared for. And listened to. Respected. And affirmed. Appreciated. And prioritized. Valued. And validated. Loved. Wanted. Jesus says, I know how that feels. Because I made your soul. I created your soul. I gave you your soul. He's empathizing with this woman. And he also says, I know the substitutes that are so often plugged in. For soul satisfaction. The substitutes like we've talked about in this series. That your soul could somehow ever be satisfied by power. Or economic success. Or sexual conquest. Jesus is empathizing with this woman. He's not exploiting her. As the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with Our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus is our great high priest, our advocate to and before God's righteousness and God's holiness. He empathizes with our weakness because, and this is so important, he lived a real life in a real time, in real circumstances like this one right here alone with this woman when no one's around and he has all of the advantage in the world. Hebrews 4.15 says that he was tempted in every way. I'm not saying that what's going on here is that Jesus was tempted in this very specific way with this woman, but don't you think his temptations included those very normal human temptations towards sexual conquest? I mean, if every way is the way that he was tempted, that has to be a part of it. Or do we treat Jesus with suspicion? Well, I'm not sure about him, so I'm not really going to think about it. Frankly, this is making me quite uncomfortable. Do we, teach him, do we uh, treat him with sentiment? Oh, Jesus was sweet, and he was nice. I've seen the pictures with the kids around him and the sheep in his arms. Or do we treat him with sensationalism? Well, Jesus was radical. He wasn't really real. At least he didn't live in my reality. And in treating him those ways, which are very normal ways to treat Jesus, do we actually miss him? The real person who was simultaneously fully God and yet fully man, and in the fullness of his humanity, He was able to empathize with our weaknesses. He was tempted in every single way. Imagine that. Because it brings so much more significance to the reality that the scripture said, he did not sin. Tempted in every way. Yet he did not sin. Then out of nowhere, uh, this woman diverts into this deep theological discourse. And it was definitely a diversion tactic, right? The conversation is back and forth. And then she wants to talk theology 101. But ladies, this situation honestly might sound familiar. She was having a conversation over a drink with a strange guy, and it wasn't going her way. So she's like, I need to change the topic real quick. And while that may be a good way to navigate uh, your dating life, that's not what was going on here, because this guy, this Jesus, is not that guy, right? Right? So in verse 25, she gets to her bottom line after this, you know, treatise on theology. Uh, Verse 25, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Jesus' personal claim to be the Christ, God's Messiah, Savior and King is perhaps no clearer than it is right here. And I want you to think about that. Jesus didn't announce that he's the Messiah and the Christ in front of the thousands who he fed or who he taught. He said it quietly in an intimate conversation with someone whose society cared nothing for and gave no power or place one-on-one away from the rest of the world, even away from his disciples. He didn't declare it to the thousand soldiers that came and captured him in the middle of the night. He didn't declare it to the Romans who sought to crucify it. He didn't declare, uh, declare it to Pontius Pilate who sought to try him or the Sanhedrin who sought to forsake him. And I just think that that's so fascinating. That in light of all of those circumstances, he wouldn't say, yo, do y'all know who I am? I'm Jesus, the Christ, God's Messiah. He didn't say it in the face of power. He said it in the face of weakness. Empathizing this woman. I am that Christ. I am the Messiah. What kind of man is this? He certainly doesn't fit the definition of American manhood. The Christ of God, the Messiah, empathizes with the thirsts of men and women. Because on his cross, he knew a thirst unlike any of ours. Which is why, and it's really interesting, uh, but in John nineteen twenty eight, I isolated this comment that he makes. He says, I am thirsty. And he says that on the cross. As he was struck off from the eternal satisfaction that he had enjoyed in his uninterrupted union with the Trinity. Again, his physical thirst was an indication of his invisible thirst. I am thirsty as he emptied himself, pouring out his very life and blood for the men and women who came, who he came to satisfy. Pouring out the living water that becomes a spring deeply inside of a person, welling up to eternal life and satisfaction, fulfillment, and pleasure. And as he hung on the cross to reconcile and account for all of our waywardness, our willful disobedience to the design and the desire of God, Jesus says, I am thirsty. Our disbelief and our disobedience and our relationship with God certainly affects how we relate to him. It's certainly how it affects how we relate to ourselves, how we relate to others and the brokenness of our sexuality is an indication of our disobedience to God. The thirst of our souls cannot be quenched by power, economic success, and they certainly can't be quenched by sexual conquest. Many, many, many have gone down those roads. Some of you may be on those roads yourselves. I speak with conviction because I went down those roads. Only to find that there's nothing down those paths. There's no pleasure. There's no joy. There's no satisfaction. There's no fulfillment. And ultimately, our thirst only increases. Those uh, options for satisfaction, they don't satisfy us. They increase our thirst, and ultimately an unsatisfied thirst can kill you. You can die of thirst. But even now, the words of Jesus on the cross ring out, I am thirsty, I have denied my thirst to quench yours. Come to me, all you who are thirsty, and drink in the living water that I will give to you that will well up to eternal life. Will you pray with me? Uh, Lord, I am so, so thankful that you are not a a God far removed, uh, that you sit, as it were, in your ivory tower or your theological tower, uh, pointing down and letting us know where we're wrong and where we're off course and where we displease you and where you're mad at us. God, that is not who you are. From the beginning, uh, you created us in your image to be satisfied in our union with you. And our sexuality uh, is an expression uh, to our spouse. Even though we're satisfied in you, you gave that as a gift to men and women to share within the union of marriage. That's fascinating. But God, again, as my human experience tells me, not only the scripture, but my human experience tells me, uh, we push you off we go our own direction, we disregard you, we say we know how to run our lives better than you, we know where satisfaction is, it's apart from you, we know where pleasure is, it has nothing to do with you, and still, you don't forsake us, you don't forget us, you put on flesh in the person of your son, Jesus Christ, you're tempted in every single way, and yet you do not sin so that you alone are qualified as the means to reconcile us back to yourself in the life, death, resurrection ascension and soon coming return of your son jesus lord i pray that we would see you afresh that we would look to you uh, as the definition of power economic success and that we would understand brokenness and sexual conquest through your life and it's in your name we pray amen